Well, good morning. I love listening to you sing. And I am so thankful for this church in particular. It is so good to be able to, to know of another like-minded church in our area. I regularly encourage people to come to your church. I know that they will be served by your pastors here. I'm so thankful for the growing friendships that I have with your pastors. Mark, Jared, Jared, Andy, Leo, Rob, Marty, Bill, Joseph, Doug, and Jim. I think I got them. I had a little help. So, but I'm so thankful that God has given you faithful pastors here in your congregation, and you should be thankful for them. It is a blessing to have good shepherds. Yes, clap for them. I'm so thankful Jared and Megan are able to, to get away and to be able to enjoy 20 years of marriage. That's just such an accomplishment and wonderful blessing in their lives. I must have been a small child when they got married. Some of you are probably thinking I'm still a small child. But it is, it is good to be here and to, to worship with you all today. And I look forward to opening God's word. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. Our time will be greatly helped by you following along with me in a copy of God's Word. We're going to begin reading in Matthew 13, verse 31, in just a few moments. But as we turn there, and as you're turning there now and looking for that section of Scripture, let me just tell us a little bit about where we are in Matthew's Gospel. Hostility against Jesus has reached its tipping point in Matthew's Gospel. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, the Pharisees, they go out, and they conspire to kill Jesus. And as a result, Jesus changes the way in which he teaches the people. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, he's teaching them in the Sermon on the Mount, and everything is clear and plain. And many of you who are familiar with your Bibles might remember that their response to Jesus' teaching is astonishment, that he taught them as one with authority. But now as a result of this, Everything changes in the way that Jesus teaches the people. He no longer speaks plainly. He speaks to them in parables. Earlier, everyone could understand, but now only those with ears to hear are able to understand who is actually in Jesus' family. Now, if you like to write in your Bible, you'll notice on either side of our text today, coming into chapter 13, there's a reference. Some of your Bibles might even say Jesus' mother and brothers. There's a reference to his family in chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. And then if you look at the end of chapter 13, in verses 53 through 58, you'll see some more references to Jesus' family. Now what that does is it actually tells us that everything in between those two references to Jesus' family is teaching us something about what it means to be in his family. The people in Jesus' family have ears to hear. They are the ones who have eyes to see. They are the ones who are able to respond to Jesus' teaching in the parables appropriately. And everybody else who does not have ears to hear or eyes to see is not inside Jesus' family. These parables do teach us something about the kingdom. But they teach us something about the people Jesus is calling to himself. In a post-Matthew 12, 14 world, everything between those references is about the family. The seven parables that are in this chapter. We're going to look at the third of those seven parables today. The parable known to many of you as the parable of the mustard seed. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. He put another parable before them saying, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whom we know as Father through our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us today as we turn our attention to your word, that you would indeed give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of God as it has been decisively revealed in the word of God, because your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And we ask that you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. William Tennant Sr. was a middle-aged Scotch-Irishman when he sailed from Northern Ireland to America in 1718 with his wife and children. Married to a daughter of the Reverend Mr. Kennedy in May of 1702 in the county of Down in the north of Ireland, he had been ordained a deacon in the Episcopal Church and then was later ordained a priest on the 22nd of September in 1706. After acting as a chaplain then for about a decade, he sailed for Pennsylvania. Soon after landing in Philadelphia, he would settle into what became his life pastorate, the Neshemini Presbyterian Church in Bucks County. It was there that Tennant resolved to establish a school to actually educate his four sons for the ministry. Nine additional students brought the original enrollment up to 13. Before then, no young man could enter into the Presbyterian ministry without traveling over to New England or even to Scotland for their education. During the first few months, the students boarded at nearby farms or they lived in the Tennant household where Miss Tennant was said to give them the necessary mothering. Tennant soon built just a small log cabin within a few steps of his own parsonage right beside the church. And some of this small group actually moved in to a crude attic space that was above the classroom. That's where they would cook their meals in the open fireplace. The students' day began at 5 a.m. with prayer. And each day after a long, rigorous day of study, it would end at 9 p.m. They attended the Neshemini Church on Sundays. But like every good work, this little college had its enemies. Critics who had grown accustomed to large stone edifices at European universities and opulent structures contemptuously referred to Tennant's school and his work as, quote, log college, because it was a log house about 20 feet wide and about 20 feet long. But, well, William refused to be deterred. Educated at Edinburgh University, he was a Greek and Hebrew scholar. He could write and speak Latin with perfect ease, and he was a well-read theologian. But that was not the most important thing about William. Most importantly, he was a pastor of unusual ability and genuine piety and evangelistic zeal. And he was a warm and faithful teacher of God's word. And he made the most of all of the facilities at his disposal. His little school of the prophets, as the English evangelist George Whitfield called it, marked an era in the history of ministerial training in North America. But it was hidden amid an unimpressive structure. No one could see what it truly was and what it would become and what was actually taking place in front of them. No one could see the fruit that it would one day bring. So they mocked it and they disdained it and they disregarded it. They thought it to be insignificant. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus tells us a parable about the insignificant giving birth to the significant. Why? Because people were starting to ask questions. Could what was happening in Jesus' life and ministry among the disciples really be the establishment of God's kingdom on earth? Was the kingdom supposed to be a mighty display of power in the defeat of evil? Or was it going to look like this, humble? Doesn't the presence of the kingdom mean the removal of all things afflicting God's people? Jesus' miracles are nice. But where are the rest of God's promises from the Old Testament as the New Testament era is beginning? As Jesus preached and as he ministered, questions like these would have gone through the minds of all of the people who were before him, whether friend or foe, just like they go through your mind when you hear sermons from this pulpit week after week after week and almost nothing seems to change in your life or in the community around you. Is the gospel really at work? Is this really what it means for the kingdom to be on display among God's people? Why are we suffering? I thought we were following God. Why are we afflicted? So Jesus tells us a parable about small and insignificant beginnings. And he says, no one should be put off by what appears to be unimpressive. Like the tiny mustard seed which grows into this large plant, so the kingdom is present, even if it is hidden, unnoticed, and ignored, because one day its full revelation will come. Notice first his kingdom. Look at verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like... Now careful readers of Matthew's gospel will observe this parable like the rest of the parables in this chapter is trying to teach us something about the kingdom of heaven. Just follow along in your Bible. And if you like to underline, you can underline the references. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. And now here again in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like. Every king must have a kingdom and Jesus is modeling how we go about evangelizing his kingdom. Friends, when we share the gospel, we are to preach and teach and speak about the kingdom. It is certainly good and true and right to speak about the death, the burial, the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. But do not forget that this gospel word is actually ushering in a kingdom. This is why Jesus, when he is preaching, includes the kingdom in his proclamation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus' gospel proclamation, Jesus' evangelism includes the kingdom, does yours. Strictly speaking, the kingdom is not a piece of real estate. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus makes this very clear for all of us by using the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, alongside the phrase, the kingdom of God. His kingdom is not an earthly kingdom ruled by a political Messiah. His kingdom is a heavenly kingdom ruled by a heavenly Messiah. His kingdom stands over earthly kingdoms. His kingdom will replace 
earthly kingdoms because his kingdom brings an end to all other kingdoms. Though his kingdom does not include every person, it is a universal kingdom. And though his kingdom faces opposition now in this life, it is an eternal kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is not a piece of real estate, so Christians are not to be hung up about what is taking place in Israel as a nation state. Because the gospel of John teaches us the kingdom that he is bringing is not of this world. I wonder, friends, if people were to talk to you about what you speak about regularly and what you think about and what you are always focusing your attention on, would they say that you are living for another world? Or are you focused right now on a kingdom this side of eternity? When Jesus preached about the kingdom, he had in mind the reign and the rule of God that breaks into the world and breaks off the power of Satan. Jesus was teaching about a kingdom that frees every one of his elect who have been held hostage by the devil. It breaks into their very lives. And as we read earlier in this service, it sets them free. He has set us free. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The very fact that our sins need to be forgiven remind all of us in this room that we desperately need a savior. And who is the savior? The Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, perhaps you are here today for the first time, or you have been here many times, and you have not trusted in Jesus as the Savior, what you are hearing us talk about, and what you have heard us sing about, and what you have heard us confess from the Apostles' Creed is simply the basic teaching of Christianity. God on high made us, and we have sinned against Him, and our sin has separated us from Him, and we desperately need to be brought back into fellowship with Him. And the only way that we can be reconciled to him is by a redeemer. And the only redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ who came into this world to save us from our sins. And if now we will trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus and repent of our sins and put off old life patterns and put on new life patterns, we will be made his children and brought into his kingdom. Would you like to enter into that kingdom? You can enter into that kingdom today. It is very simple in the Bible. You just simply need to repent, turn away from your sins, throw off all of the things that are ailing you in your life, and you need to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Friends, you can do that right now in the middle of this sermon and ask Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners. And the scripture assures us that no matter how much sin you have committed, no matter what you did last night or you did on your way to church this morning, no matter how many things you have done that have wrecked your life and turned everything into a dumpster fire around you, that Jesus Christ will always meet the repentant with forgiveness and mercy. <laughs> Friends, come to him. Come to Christ. He will never cast you out. If you'd like to learn more about that, I would love to talk to you about that after the service. But all of those pastors that I listed off earlier, they would love to do that too. To open the Bible with you and tell you how to become a Christian. Friends, as we think about what Jesus is doing here, he is proclaiming about a kingdom. And as he's proclaiming about that kingdom, he believes that people are being drawn into that kingdom. When Jesus did his evangelism, he did not only talk about forgiveness and atonement. He talked about a reality, 
a world, a kingdom much larger than our own individual personal faith experience. We need to remember that as we are preaching about the kingdom, we are not only calling people to turn to Christ. We are doing that. But we are inviting them to be a part of the people of God. Friends, conversion is about a personal relationship with Christ. But it is also about so much more. About that lowercase c Catholic church where God is bringing men and women, young and old, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation to be among his people. There is no kingdom apart from his sacrifice. But because of his sacrifice, so much more has been opened up to us. It is a kingdom where the rule of Satan is broken and the word of God spreads and Christ renews all things and all people. It saves us and prepares us for another world. Friends, sometimes in our evangelism and in our preaching and in our teaching, we need to tell people about a bigger part of the story, about how they're being brought in to be a part of something much larger than their own lives. And when we do, we will find new ways of getting the gospel of the kingdom into their lives and be able to confront their objections with fresh perspectives. The kingdom of heaven is like, verse 31, means this is how God's rule is being established. Through the preaching and the teaching about the kingdom. You can be confident when you evangelize as you see the kingdom spreading through that proclamation. It is growing, sometimes visibly, sometimes invisibly. But that is what is so wonderful about the kingdom. That you do not have to measure your success or your faithfulness or your usefulness by what you're able to see around you. You can do the work of an evangelist and carry out your faith with confidence knowing that you are participating in the work of the kingdom even when, sometimes especially when, you cannot see it. Yet the tragedy is that not everyone who is there to see it or hear about it, recognizes it when it comes. The Pharisees have been around Jesus. They've heard him preach. They've seen him work. They've seen wonderful things take place around them. And yet, the scripture tells us in Matthew chapter 12, four, uh, verse 14, that they went out and they conspired against Jesus how to destroy him. They're indignant. They demand that the people get healed on the other six days, as if something like that happens every day. They know the religious rules, but they do not know what they point to. And Jesus tells us that people like that are hypocrites. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would go in to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Friends, perhaps there are some here today who have lived hypocritical lives. Not only have you shown yourself to not be one who is entering the kingdom, but you have made it very difficult for the people who you're supposed to be telling about the kingdom around you to hear the truth about its proclamation. You know the religious rules, but you don't know what they point to. Everything in your life has the flavor of Christianity, but you know nothing of its power. Jesus was always merciful with repentant people, but Jesus was always fierce with the religious hypocrites. Jesus was fierce with them, and he made sure that they knew that their religion had no power. That their rules did not take them to the kingdom. That all of the things that they trusted in apart from Christ would never bring them to the place of hope and comfort and peace and mercy. Friends, today, if you are the person 
who is walking publicly with Christ, but behind closed doors is living the type of life that is hypocritical. Jesus has a merciful word for you. Repent, believe, come to Christ, throw it off, and you too will never be cast out. The type of person who pretends to be religious and speaks about the gospel of the kingdom, but gossips in the foyer and posts what you read on your social media feed, but then you lie to your spouse. The greatest shame is, is that these hypocrites, though they look like they are walking faithfully and in accord with the power of God, do not see it, do not hear it, and they miss it entirely. The kingdom of heaven is like, but what is it like? And to what can it be compared? His kingdom, notice second, his comparison. Look at verse 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. Jesus draws an analogy between a tiny garden seed and the kingdom of heaven because at first glance, it seems that there is little to show for all of the sowing of the seed. There is little to show for all of Jesus' ministerial effort in his life. Despite being the greatest teacher the world has ever known, Despite awestruck crowds, there appear to be relatively few disciples. There is no substantial platform to subsidize his ministry. There is no following to expand his prophetic brand. So skeptical people and observers might look at this, quote, kingdom and conclude, nothing is happening after all. And nothing will ever come of all of this preaching and teaching about the kingdom in Jesus' life. But Jesus' vivid description is pregnant with meeting. His parable reveals an inner dynamic about the nature of the kingdom. It unveils a particular characteristic about Jesus' kingdom. Look again at what he says closely. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It is the smallest of all seeds. This mustard seed was so small that when you held it in the palm of your hand, it would look more like black dust than seed. A sheer miracle. The mustard seed kingdom's beginning is so small so brittle, so fragile, so questionable. It's a wonder that there's anything at all. And in the eyes of men, it seems impossible to identify Jesus' mustard seed kingdom with the mighty kingdom of God. But Jesus tells us that God is in the beginning, making the first of his momentous moves toward the fulfillment of all of his covenant promises in Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But why? Why would Jesus use this dubious image? Why not something more powerful? Because his followers needed to know the very same thing that you need to know today. The very same thing that all of us need to be encouraged to remember this morning. That the kingdom is present. Even if, and especially when, you can't see it. They didn't need to know that the kingdom was coming. They knew that. They needed to know that the kingdom was present. And Jesus describes the kingdom as already present at times in his ministry. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven now. Matthew chapter 12, verses 27 and 28. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you now. 
Matthew chapter 19, verse 14. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven now. Jesus insists that the kingdom is near, even though it is not already here. So when we read of the mustard seed kingdom and learn that it is tiny, we are already predisposed to see the paradox of the hidden, unrecognized status of God's kingship giving birth to something significant as compared with its future consummation, which is why he uses this image. It's hidden now, but one day it'll be uncovered. It's tiny now, but one day it'll be large. It's present now, even though you cannot see it, but one day every eye will see it, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. His parable is not so much a story as it is an observation of the normal course of nature. It was so memorable that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it challenges all human perception and judgment. A few years ago, a friend of mine's church told a story about a young member of their church, a man with cerebral palsy, a man named Roger. His body is contorted, his hands and feet are disfigured, his speech is slurred, but he's always at church on time and he serves as a greeter during the second service at 11 o'clock. If Roger isn't in his wheelchair, he's probably on the ground maneuvering around on all fours so that he can eat his food from the hand of another person or have his teeth brushed for him by a caretaker before crawling into his own bed. He can't even shave his own face. But when asked about his condition, Roger said this, I don't have to listen to the lies that since I am disabled, I am not important to God. God made me who I am, and I was born with cerebral palsy, not because of an accident, but on purpose. And when I think of on purpose, I say, oh man, how can I not worship God? Because he loved me that much to give me cerebral palsy so that I can encourage the whole body of the church and non-believers. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' mustard seed kingdom teaches us that we have it all wrong. The parable tells us that we have it all wrong, that what we think is powerful is not. And what we think is meaningful is not. And who we think is significant is not. The presence of the kingdom tells us that when we see it in weakness, we begin to see something of the strength of the kingdom and that we can have hope and confidence and encouragement because when we are weak, then we are strong. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who have suffered greatly, you are a gift to the church because the only thing that explains that your continued faith is that you are one of God's children among his people and in his kingdom. And when you look out on the world and you see all that they have and you long for it and you pine for it, remember that Jesus' mustard seed kingdom is better. Even though it is hard in this life, it is better. Even when it is difficult in this life, it is better. His kingdom, his comparison, Notice third, his point. Look at verse 32. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. The parable of the soils and the parable of the wheat and the weeds actually pave the way for this parable because they teach us that there is this inevitable, divinely intended progression from sowing to harvest, from hiddenness to revelation, from insignificance to significance. And despite all of the appearances to the contrary, the kingdom of God is growing. Its harvest will one day come, but it will come in God's time. It will come in God's way. It will not come by human effort. 
It will not come in accordance with human logic. In due time, all of this sowing and all of this work and all of this labor will actually give birth to its intended effect, even if human insight cannot fathom how the process works. So this parable is a message about rightly interpreting the world around us and responding to these times of apparent insignificance and being able to see that Jesus' kingdom is present even when everybody around Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is rejecting Jesus and desiring to kill Jesus and walking away from Jesus. How is it that God's kingdom is being built in those moments? It is teaching us that despite all of the appearances to the contrary, something significant is happening and it is teaching us a familiar theme. Great oaks from little acorns grow. Though the mustard seed is proverbially tiny, it produces a large plant that can grow more to six feet in its height. Tree is certainly a bit of an exaggeration here by Jesus, but the term is used to exhort all of those who witness it in the initial proclamation of the kingdom to not despise small beginnings. They should not be impatient for the full majesty of God's kingdom to be revealed. The focus on the contrast here is between the beginning and the end. The beginning and the process of growth where it shows that something is taking place. Jesus' teaching warns them against underestimating what appears to be insignificant. However unimpressive it might look in this life. What began in the Galilean ministry of Jesus will one day prove by the power of God to be of ultimate significance for every person. Even if for the time being it is hidden and we are mocked and we are disdained. And literally the whole world, including our own nation, turn against us. They can work against us, but they cannot work against the kingdom and its consummation. And the scripture assures us that ultimately on that day, it will be spectacular what takes place. We see this in the last, in the climactic vision of God in Christ. There is a regal God with the lamb sitting around. And this is what John's revelation says to us in chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anyone accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. All reality... Throughout all time and eternity is presented as standing under God's rule. And his royal presence is shown over all kingdoms and dominions. And in that same vision, we see believers described as a kingdom ruled by a heavenly Messiah from his throne. In chapter 1 verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Friends, this provides the motivation for us to persist in trying circumstances in our lives. To begin to continue in the midst of unspeakable suffering and hardship. Because we are assured of a victory 
and a status with God's people that is royal and regal for everyone who is loyal to this Christ. Friends, praise is offered to our God who is supreme because he has promised us something greater than we can ever imagine in this life. That is the reason that we gather on Sundays. That is the reason that we give our attention to the scripture. That is the reason that we proclaim the gospel to every man, woman, and child, young and old, rich and poor. This is the reason that we go to them and call them into this kingdom because he is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of their worship, whether they know it or not or believe it or not. And he is calling them into his kingdom and we are inviting them into the greatest story the world has ever heard, the forgiveness of sins with Christ's people for all of eternity. He doesn't just offer us life. He offers us eternal life. Friends, how could we not worship? From the apparent insignificance of his ministry to the resulting great kingdom that it will one day bring, the kingdom of heaven, which as yet seems inconspicuous, will continue to grow and it will embrace all peoples as God brings them to himself. And who is this king? He is the image of the invisible God, the force firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that in him everything might be found to be preeminent. Friends, this one is the Christ of God. As God's humble servant, Jesus uses this very humble symbol to teach us about his upside-down mustard seed kingdom. While critics contemptuously referred to William Tennant's school as Log College, 18th century British North America was alive with enthusiasm and evangelical fervor with what has been known to us as the Great Awakening. The Awakening had deep social and spiritual significance in the fast-growing English colonies. And that famous awakening is associated with wonderful people like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley. And it was during that awakening that in a sparse frontier outpost, what some people believed to be the first of its kind, that there was an institution for the training of ministers for the British colonies. It didn't look like much. But between 1727 and 1745... This backcountry seminary exerted significant influence on colonial education and Presbyterian church polity. Its curriculum was simple but demanding. And William Tennant was the school's overseer and guiding force. In a small log frame structure, about 20 feet long and 20 feet wide, William Tennant would drill his students each day in scripture and this new style of preaching exposition championed by the Awakenings preachers. Though its surroundings were modest and humble, creature comforts were few, Tennant was faithful. And even though he never wrote a book, he gained an influential following. History teaches us that some men accomplish more by whom they educate and train than their own personal labors. And that is certainly true for William Tennant. His graduates, including his four sons, grew to prominence throughout the middle colonies, establishing churches and schools that modeled the Law College. In time, their influence spread throughout the academy and then throughout the Pennsylvania backcountry. 
And though it is sometimes mistakenly associated with the 1746 founding of the College of New Jersey, which later became known to all of us as Princeton University, the ties are nonetheless significant. Three of the early trustees were benefactors of the Law College, Samuel Blair, Gilbert Tennant, and William Tennant, Jr. Law College graduates Samuel Finley later served as their fifth president of Princeton. His predecessor, Samuel Davies, studied under Blair. All 13 of the original Law College students became pioneers in Christian education, and a number of them became preachers in educational institutions and their leaders. A monument at that site, even today, will tell you that 51 colleges stemmed from that little school. William Tennant Sr. died in 1746 at the age of 73. The following year, everything that he gave his life to closed. But Dr. Archibald Alexander later observed a major advantage that the Law College students possessed, that there was a spirit of piety and fervor that nourished the institution in them with care. It wasn't just that they learned the right things. They became the right type of people in the wrong type of world. They had, we have reason to believe, the Holy Spirit. There was a major contributing benefactor or a figure for all of them though, William Tennant. Friends, I just want to give you a few practical applications here as we think of the insignificant giving birth to the significant. For all of your labors in one-on-one discipleship that look like they might be frustrated and going nowhere, be encouraged. You never know the impact that you will have on somebody's life by just speaking a good word on behalf of Jesus as you open the Bible and speak to them across the table. For all of the stay-at-home moms here, who sometimes are spending more time chasing the kids and trying to keep them inside than actually being able to progress and do anything positive. To encourage you, you never know how significant these formative years are in their life and how the insignificance will one day give birth to something significant in their lives. For all of the ministry that takes place here at this church that never is on this platform or served back here behind me, you are literally the glue that is holding the church together. You are the type of people that are helping something significant happen as the gospel is being preached, passing out programs and greeting people as they walk through doors and cleaning toilets and ministering to children and all of the things that you do. The insignificant is giving birth to the significant as the people of God are coming together. For all of the people who have suffered here and thought that your suffering has gone unnoticed and that no one cares and no one sees, first know God cares and God sees And what might seem to be completely useless in your life is a gift to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you serve here at this church, you help people see that though suffering can be terrible and it is great in your life and perhaps theirs, that Jesus Christ can intervene and keep them in the faith and that they can still be used mightily for the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, wherever you might be in your life today, however you might be struggling and wrestling, whatever you might be wrestling with, even as this sermon has been preached, know that the insignificant will one day give birth to the significant and God will welcome us. He will wipe away every tear and you will hear the wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. It is a privilege to preach for people that we know and that are loved. And I pray, Father, for them today, that you would encourage them in the hope of the gospel. I pray, Father, that you would build them up in a holy faith, 
I pray, Father, that you would sustain them in the work of the ministry here at Covenant Fellowship. I pray, Father, that you would increase their influence here in this community and in surrounding communities. I thank you for the churches that they have planted and for the missionaries that they have sent out and for the attention that they give to your word. Father, I thank you for the encouragement that they have been to me personally and to our church in particular. Father, I thank you that you have been drawing people to yourself and that as you draw them into this church, that you are helping them see that they are a part of something bigger as the people of God. Father, we pray together for all who might be among us today who are not yet Christians, that today they would hear this good news of the gospel and that they would know that they can come to Christ that you would do the good work of redeeming grace in their lives and remove the heart of stone and insert the heart of flesh and cause them to be born again. And Father, we pray that you would increase our joy, that you would help us to trust that in those moments when you, we feel that you have forgotten us or forsaken us or have overlooked us or perhaps might never use us mightily in this life, that the insignificant will one day give birth to the significant. So keep us faithful. May we be faithful stewards of what you have entrusted to us. In Jesus' name, amen.